Welcome to Dig In, the podcast brought to you by Dig Insights. Every week, we interview founders, marketers, and researchers from innovative brands to learn how they're approaching their role and their category in a clever way. Welcome back to another episode of Dig In. We've got a recurring guest back with us, Mike Stevens, who is the founder of Insight Platforms. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. I uh, I thought I'd disgrace myself after the last episode. So uh, yeah, <laughs> nice to know that I'm still uh, not excluded. Good to be here. No, <laughs> no, it's great to have you back on. Um, this time, I think last time you were chatting to um, Paul, one of our founders, but today you get to chat to me and we actually have known each other for a while. I spent um, about eight years in the UK and obviously you know, Mike, you don't hide the accent well. It's very clear, <laughs> very clear that you're from the UK. Um, so we got a okay. chance to meet oh, quite good. a few times in the past. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, I know. Yeah, so I, I think today we're going to chat a little bit about what, I mean, the word res tech is being thrown around a lot, but um, yeah. kind of what that what that optimal mix of sort of um, technology, and managed services um, and strategic work, like what that might look like in 2023. You obviously have a very unique position in the market given um, you founded Insight Platforms. Do you mind just explaining to the listener kind of what is Insight Platforms? Sure, yeah, no problem. Um, Yeah, it's a website that I founded about three or four years ago. And it's right now, it's, it's a directory of research uh, providers, so technology service providers, data companies uh, across the full spectrum of, of what I think of as the research industry. So it includes UX and customer experience as well as, as market research. So there's a directory. We host online events. We have virtual events and demos, and we have lots of online video content you can access for free. And we're building uh, an e-learning platform as well. We have a lot of online courses. We're just relaunching that in Q4 this year. So yeah, those three legs really. It's a, a directory events and e-learning site for what I think it was modern digital research. You know, it's um, not so much of the, the old school stuff. Yeah. I think uh, you said something interesting there. You said what I kind of define as the insights category. How would you define that? Yeah, that's uh, it's, it's tricky. It's, it's a tricky. tricky one. Yeah, I mean, I'd 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 worked with research for about five six years at the start of my career before I'd ever worked for a proper research company or even actually worked for a, a research buyer. All of the work that I did in my early stage was doing uh, you know B two B market strategy work for marketing people, for business leaders, for you know heads of strategy. But it's all kind of research, and I think. You know, if you're working in a niche, you often think the boundaries of the industry are your niche, but they're really not. And we've got so many creative things happening around adjacent spaces to market research. You know, we've got in the product management space, we've got in the UX research, we've got customer experience, analytics, social, uh, you know, listening. There's, There's so much happening, but it's happening often in different areas of organizations by different people with different skill sets. So for me, that that bigger, broader um, extended category is what I define as the, you know, the research industry these days. Yeah, I I think it's it's funny because I've spent so much time in like SaaS DIY research. Yeah. 
um, in my career. And I definitely did exactly what you just said. I kind of defined the space quite narrowly around that. And actually it's changing so much. Um, just even a lot of the platforms that you have on Insight platforms, um, you know, it's like about user testing and UX testing. Like it's not even about understanding your target audience anymore. And that's really cool to see. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of I mean, in terms are, of, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say some of the, you know, I mean, you, you, you talked about user testing as a category, but some of the companies in that space have attracted enormous amounts of funding and investment. So, you know, the, the company user testing, you know, is a, is now a you know public multi-billion dollar business as you know was funded to the tune of several hundred million over several rounds you know there's a lot of of money and interest going into these adjacent spaces and i think if you're if you work in the market research area it's it's well worth just you know looking into these other areas because there's a lot happening yeah peeking your head out from your little yeah. <laughs> narrow niche yeah. um so why did you create insight platforms uh because I I left, I, I had a proper job, I left it, and <laughs> I started doing some consulting for myself, and which was, uh, you know, hard work, because you're either chasing business or drowning in business, and I needed something, I wanted to build something that that was, you know, was, was going to work with my lifestyle, but also there's a big gap around people's knowledge and understanding in these spaces, so no, it was a kind of happy area. The consulting, I was, a lot of the consultancy I was doing was helping people navigate these new areas. And, I'll, you know, I launched the site initially to, you know, to help people with a directory of, of these new research tools, but it, it's grown into much more of a kind of content and learning hub since then. So very much from a, a consulting background into more of a, you know, more of a platform business. Cool. And it's constantly growing right like how many new platforms get added to the insight platforms um kind of dashboard or website on a on a yeah, we, basis i mean when i when i launched this i think there were about 200 when we when we first went live and um there are now about 1300 companies in the directory and there are more you know every week new companies add themselves sometimes you get random ones and i have to say to people you're really not a very good fit but uh, yeah. it's, you know, it is a very, let's say it's a very creative category right now. Lots of people are starting things up. I, I come across companies on, you know, when I'm, when I'm browsing across the internet and I think, wow, this is, you know, this is clearly an established business, but it's actually just a very good piece of web design from someone who's a, you know, who's, who's got it as a side project. So it's not always easy to tell, you know, without a little digging as to you know just how much substance is there behind some of these new startups but there's there's certainly a lot of activity going on a lot of new companies being formed yeah and i guess that that's quite important i didn't even think about that side of things like kind of managing that is super important for you just in terms of the integrity of what your site offers you would want to make sure that these businesses and these startups are actually worthwhile for the people that are using um, the site yeah it's it's you know it's a it's a it's a fine line because um you know i don't want to host anything that's clearly dodgy or you know isn't what it appears to be but at the same time you know we, we're effectively a marketplace for companies to you know to showcase themselves and and connect with potential buyers so you know there's nearly every month there's about there's about twenty thousand people on the site looking for 
either for learning or, or for companies. So, you know, you, there's a limit to how much you can realistically uh, bless every new company that adds themselves. But it's, um, yeah, definitely fast growing area for sure. Very cool. Okay. Um, I'm going to transition a little bit to kind of the reason we wanted to have you on here. Obviously, we've got a lot of people in research and marketing and innovation that listen. Um, we also have business founders um, who want to get their finger on the pulse of kind of what's happening in the research space. Um, so huge question to, to ask you, but what is happening right now in the research space? And I don't just mean in the SaaS space, you know, yeah. what are some trends that you're seeing? Yeah, uh, there's a, uh, I mean, there's a, there is a lot of change. I think people are, are spinning uh, given how quickly things are evolving in some areas. In some ways, things things change very fast, and then they don't change at all. You know, it's it's an interesting um, sort of contradiction because we saw, I think, three or four years ago, a huge rush of SaaS platforms in the space. So, you know, very much software only, DIY. Um, you know, the agency is dead. Who needs those guys anymore? And there was a bit of a trend in in-house teams and client-side teams to think, well, look, you know, I can do all this. I can do some of this stuff myself. I can do my ad testing, my concept testing in-house. I don't need an agency. I've got this bit of kit. It's actually not that easy. And yeah. what people recognized, I think, is the skills gap, the behavior gap, the just the sheer unseen workload that agencies have been doing means that it's it's not just not enough to turn off that support and expect an existing team to go and you know to go and work with software. So I think what we're seeing is a is a kind of phase two maturing of the software companies recognizing that they either need partnerships or they need in-house service teams to be able to meet client needs. And then we've got agencies who are recognizing that either for you know, efficiency for cost competitiveness or for value add that they need to have a technology component to their offer. So, you know, for very um, parochially for me, the, the directory that I host is no longer really a pure software directory. There's an awful lot of mm -hmm. hybrid businesses in there, agencies who have tech products, the, the definition between what's a professional service company and what's a software company is definitely eroding a lot. And I think that is not just the research tech industry. The, the marketing tech space is seeing a similar sort of trend. You look at Salesforce and the number of professional services consultants they have. You look at the, you know, the, the 800 pound gorilla of the research tech space in, in Qualtrics. You're talking 25 to 30% of their revenues are professional services. So in-house, yeah. and that's, you know, that doesn't include their, their partners. So it, there's a lot more nuance. When I worked for a, a SaaS company in the research tech space, the almost the kind of religious dogma was people are margin destroyers. You need, you know, you don't need staff. You need to be pure play SaaS. You need to be running a, a, a kind of 20 times uh, multiple of revenue on your valuation because you've basically got this lean model. I think that's changing a lot. And I think there's a maturing and a recognition that it's complex some of the research methods and tools they need human curation they need experts to be able to work in tandem with the technology and that's yeah it may sound like a, a truism but i think we're seeing that play out in the the way that companies are restructuring and hiring in skills or, or partnering to get those 
So that's yeah. So that's uh, that's one big trend. I've almost forgotten the question because I uh, I went off on a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is I I've almost forgotten the question. That's so interesting. <laughs> like I agree I agree with you on that though. Yeah. Um, having been in this space for a while, I've worked for a few SaaS providers, and you know there was this idea that everyone wants to get self service working from a research SaaS perspective or SaaS research perspective. And that's really challenging because research is an art as well as a science, right? Um, and I think that's what people are seeing play out is how can you scale expertise? That's really hard to do. Um, so no, that's definitely one trend uh, that, I mean, not to you know toot our own horn, but it's great that I work for a company like Dig because um, we have the consulting side and we have the technology and that's kind of the the pro problem we're wrestling with now is like how do you scale some not all but some yeah. of the expertise of the consultants and the minds that created the technology um in a way that's actually useful for people if they did want to use yeah. uh self-serve yeah. yeah so it's I, a, it's I a management that. headache i have to say it can be a management headache because they're very different beasts as businesses you know you've got a tech uh, business that needs capital it needs development time it needs uh, you know very specific set of, of growth and um, product skills you've got a professional services which is effectively selling expertise by the hour and you've got much more individual uh, let's say you know uh, much more importance attached to the the knowledge and expertise of individuals and yeah. that needs a different set of management skills so it's hard you know and I know you're founders um you know it kind of stretched across those two those two big challenges so it's difficult i do recognize that yeah um so the initial question was yeah. what's happening in the space so i think we've isolated this one sort of the tension yeah. between or maybe not tension maybe it's 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 maybe not tension it's it's difficult to to make it work but um the need for there to be less separation between sort yeah. of the human focused and the tech focused research Anything else you wanted to call out? Yeah, I think the, I mean, at a macro level, there's just this huge growth in hunger for insights about people. And it's it's not really that visible in the numbers. So the, some of the, there's not a lot of data in the industry because the industry is so diverse and fragmented. Uh, but the, the way that SMR counts the the growth in the industry you can see something you know some incredible pockets of very high growth particularly on the on the digital the diy side of things and on the strategy consulting side of things so we're talking about you know the the industry likely to be a hundred billion dollar industry in you know a couple of years time up from you know sort of 70 to 80 in in 2020 so it's now there's there's very strong growth but actually i would say the total volume of research and understanding of people is far, far bigger than that because you've got lots of measurement activity. You've got lots of user research happening that's just not reflected in those numbers. You've got product managers who are going and, you know, actually just calling customers. You've got people who are in roles that are just not reflected in the research industry. So what you have is this massive growth in whether you call it kind of customer centric, user centric, evidence based decision making. You've got massive fragmentation of the people who are doing that. So you've got, you know, you've got people in, like I say, product roles, design roles. You've got designers who can create a mock-up, send it to some, you know, some users to get test and feedback and have that back. That's not captured in any of the industry data at all. 
So big, big growth, people at C-suite level preaching about customer experience, about the importance of, you know, of, of focusing on users. And what that means is people who do research are now much, much more, there's a much bigger spectrum from the very expert to the completely novice. And at the completely novice end of things, you've got people who are using tools that have been you know massively simplified big focus on the user experience ease of use uh, and that philosophy is is actually going up into the more complex products as well so you can do now you know not quite at the touch of a button but you can do phenomenally complex research methods that have been coded into into software that even two or three years ago would have needed expert teams and, and lots of time to do that has big implications, I think, for how you structure a research team, what a research team's role is, um, you know, how those people who don't have the expertise can avoid making terrible mistakes and recommending, you know, reading data wrong, that type of thing. So to me, there's, there's, this, there's this enormous growth in demand, fragmentation of research use, and then implications all across the industry for how we develop tools how we coach and train people and you know what agencies and, and what research teams are actually there for now yeah i hadn't looked at it from that perspective of like the momentum kind of coming from the non-experts or the novices um and then moving upwards um but that's so interesting i had a uh, i don't know if you were there we <laughs> Do you remember when there was that app that I don't think anyone uses anymore where it was like um, you could host discussions and people had to get up on... Anyways, I don't remember what it was Clubhouse. called. Sorry? Clubhouse. Clubhouse. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. even remember what it was called. <laughs> um, but yeah, we had a few people from the client side join us and Michelle Gainsley, I think she was at McDonald's at the time. Um, no, she was at... Yeah, it doesn't matter. But she was talking about how there's no there's no benefit to gatekeeping your research. Yeah. Um, like as a researcher, being able to give technology to the rest of like the marketing team and the product team and um, the innovation team, like category teams, that's, that's helpful for you because you'd get to do more of your the strategic work as long as the training is there. And so I, what I hear you saying is like that training is the gap. And I guess that's, why Inside Platforms has been so successful. Um, but yeah, it's it's just very interesting. Like I'd never thought about it from, from the perspective of why this was happening or like where it started um, because I'm always talking to the clients who are trying to grapple with like, how do we train people to use these tools? Yeah, um, yeah super interesting. I, yeah. I wonder like, you know, if you put your consulting hat back on, yeah. from years previous and you were consulting with let's say the head of global research for mcdonald's yeah. you know what would you say to them about how to select a research platform um about or how to select many platforms um how they might want to structure things moving forward so that they're not gatekeeping technology yeah any any yeah. thoughts on that uh well let's i mean i don't actually know the mcdonald's research team so i'm let's say i'm advising a fictional company called burger co or something like that rather okay. than because i have no idea whether uh, you know <laughs> mcdonald's would um 
uh, pay any attention to me or uh, would would need this kind of advice. But I think, you know, it's not easy. Choosing technology is it's a it's a discipline in itself. You know, so selecting, making sure that you're going through the right process. I've actually recently run a workshop with a with a big group of uh, client side buyers in the UK you know walking them through some of the basic principles and i think there are some there are some very specific things that you need to look for and tick off in a checklist capacity so you know obviously compliance privacy all of those kind of nitty gritty things yeah. that are going to work that's a kind of given then you've got some broad principles about what to look for that go across doesn't matter whether you're buying a knowledge management tool or a concept screening platform whatever it is and i think those big principles are consistent and they you know they really relate to um you know usability and usability is often seen as a you know making things pretty or you know it really isn't you know it's such a sophisticated the whole user experience space giving people the right onboarding education giving them the right language making sure that things are you know designed in a way that is intuitive that they can understand so driving adoption it's like the canva principle of Mm -hmm. you know anyone can be a designer so templates onboarding you know making things visually you know straightforward so a lot of that don't underplay the importance of that because adoption and kind of behavioral barriers are where these things fall down you can have the best app in the world but if you haven't got the right kind of ux to get people using it it won't be used um so that's one i think increasingly integrations and platform ecosystems are are a huge part you know don't go buying something that lives in its own little bubble off to the side you know you need to be able to have at the very least you know strong ways of interchanging data with other tools ideally you want it to integrate with your systems of record like you know salesforce or your kind of snowflake or redshift environments you know your data environments and interestingly today there's a, a new there's an initiative that a, that a bunch of people have been working on for uh, a common interchange format between survey uh, platforms. So it's called TS API. It's a, it's a single API that allows you to take survey data that was collected in, for example, you know, the Forster platform and then move it into the Qualtrics platform or vice versa. And that is sounds simple, but it's an enormous amount of work and actually should on just for the kind of survey tech side of things should unlock a lot of value so those are you know those are some of the big the big principles integrations ux and then there's a whole lot of other stuff to to look out for but i think you know generally be be serious about evaluating and selecting technology don't assume that it's just something you can do in your spare time i think you need to dedicate as a as a research team you know, either have somebody who's responsible for it or have a you know, portion of somebody's job and give them the tools and skills to, to know how to buy tech because it's, you know, it's not like buying agency services. Don't just assume that because you like working with a great agency that the tech that they use or that they introduce to you is necessarily going to be the best thing. So, you know, you do need to, to keep an eye open. There's, you know, there's so many great resources for finding out about technology. You know, we host now, I think it's like 70 or 80 on-demand demos of, of um, you know, research yeah. tools that you can just go and watch. And, you know, so it, it's easier and easier to do your homework beforehand, but it, it takes time and it's not something that you can just approach as a, uh, certainly if you're, you know, 
a large enterprise team like Burger Co. You know, you, you need to you need to live <laughs> seriously. You know, it's uh, yeah, my, my advice. That's really helpful. Um, I think you kind of got into what the watchouts might be. So not assuming that just because the agency you work with um, uses a piece of technology that you know you'll like it or that it'll be yeah. fit for purpose. Any yeah. other watchouts for people? Yeah, I think there's two big things that are, are common to technology generally. It's not just research technology. Um, and they, they kind of revolve around the related twin twin concepts of, of deflation and, and replication. Because, you know, if you, if you look at the pricing impact that technology has had on the research industry over the last 10 years, it's been phenomenal. It's, it's had a sort of precipitous you know, decline in the average cost for a typical project, something like three, you know, uh, a, a cost to run a standard online research study is now less than 30% of what it would have been 10 years ago. And that is not about moving from offline to online. It's about technology related deflation right across the board, because, you know, once you build some software, technically your marginal costs are, you know, <laughs> a zero when you come to replicate that. So, you know, once you've actually built it, you've done that work, you can you can sell it at a much lower cost. And there are some, you know, some great examples here of, um, you know, what at the time, even six, eight years ago, was really innovative, leading edge AI technology. So for video analytics, so. Uh, Living Lens was one of the, the the kind of early startups acquired by by Medallia, and um, you know it's it was an enterprise play. It's a, it's a big ticket item when it first launched. The capacity really is about or the, the the feature set is about transcribing the spoken word from video and making video searchable, and you can click you know subsets. I just bought a lifetime deal for a platform that kind of does that for about $200, unlimited video, unlimited transcription. And, you know, so I'll be recording all my you know, consulting engagements that are over Zoom. I'll be recording a lot of my webinars. And then, you know, you transcribe your code, you can clip and you can search the video. So that's, you know, that's an example of precipitous kind of, you know, deflation mm -hmm. and replication. You know, that the, the app that I bought is one of dozens and dozens that do largely the same thing. So, you know, and you'll see if you look in some of the tech marketplaces like uh, well, Zapier, which is the, the kind of um, uh, automations marketplace, you'll find kind of two or 300 tools that are listed as survey or formal feedback tools. You know, they're, they're just the sheer proliferation of these, these tools means it's just very, very easy to do a me too copy. So. Those are the two things that I'll say in addition to, you know, not just taking the first thing you're offered or, or, or um, you know, not, not investing enough time in appraising technology. Be very aware that future proofing is hard because of these kind of deflation and, and replication effects of technology. And that's, that's really uh, a fact of life you just have to be prepared for. Yeah, I think what I hear when you say, you know, you, could have gone with living lens or you know that that exists but um the price tag's probably higher um when you were able to get something for much cheaper it makes me think you're you know and i don't want to put words in your mouth but are you kind of saying like you don't have to pay for the don't pay for brand in a sense like uh, I, because not, living lens has been around i think i think uh I, you know, I wouldn't want to be doing a disservice to, to the Living Lens team, but I think a great, you know, another founder um, and, you know, 
Medallia is a is a is a great business as well. But I think now the the issue here is that if you if you get in at the start of something when the price is very high and you're effectively a trial customer for something that's you know that's in development, you can end up being locked into something that is quite rapidly either superseded or replicated at much lower cost. So just be careful about long term commitments. Yeah. Be careful about things that are very leading edge about over committing to stuff you know at, at that stage you know you you will see fairly quick kind of reductions in, in prices things become more standardized and, and more widely available okay yeah no that that makes sense sorry living living lens you seem you seem <laughs> great that was not a not a dig at uh, at them um so switching gears a little bit um before i think we've only got a little bit of time left but i did want to ask you about working with agencies um so obviously we've focused a lot on the technology piece um but from your perspective if we're thinking about let's say research agencies in the loosest term because obviously there can be lots of different types of research agency or consultancy like what does a really good partner look like for um you know a marketing or insights leader at a consumer brand yeah, I think, I mean, you know, we, we kind of already talked about the need to have services wrapped around technology. So I think there is, um, you know, agencies now have to understand, have to work with, have to, you know, potentially have offers that are combined technology and professional services, you know, products, propositions. Yeah. I think that's really, really important. It's, um, you know, other than in very niche areas, you know, sure, if you've got, you know, an independent freelance semiotics expert, you know, who's not that great with computer, different story. But generally, agencies really need to understand technology, really need to harness it and potentially, you know, create combined products. So that's that's one thing. But I think at a higher level, I think there's we're starting to see a bit of a separation between, you know, do you want an agency that is uh, a doer or do you want an agency that's a thinker? You know, so you've got a bit of a, um, you know, agencies that are effectively going to collect the data, run the project, deliver, um, you know, here's the here's the output. You know, we've done it for you. It's effectively a you know outsourcing of effort type model. Or do you want an agency that's really going to bring you strategic advice, consulting grade, um, you know, insights? And I think we're starting to see that uh, separation a little bit more now in the industry between, you know, kind of premium advisory and delivery of, of, of data. But I think there's a there's a there's a thing I you know I I can say this because I don't depend on client side teams for for revenue, but I think. The way that clients contract with agencies, they've really got to get their house in order. This thing hasn't changed since the 80s. You know, it's putting out briefs for 5K projects to six agencies. It's spending ages making people chase their tails. The commercial model that client research teams have for engaging research partners is busted and they really need to fix it. So, you know, we can sit here and say, Agencies need to do X, Y, and Z. This is what clients need from agencies. It's like you also need to do your piece of this, which is fix the commercial models for engaging mm. serious partners. Don't treat them, you know, like they've got endless capacity just to respond to mindless briefs. You know, bring them inside, make them effective partners in your business. 
do the due diligence to you know to, to create long-term partnerships don't just keep this you know ad hoc model that i think doesn't serve anybody very well ultimately drains agencies a margin that you want them to reinvest in their product or people and increases prices to the to the customer so if i was to say that's my one big beef sorry for going off on a rant but i think the uh, you know, that is a that is a broken part of the process still it staggers me how this is how this still happens but uh, yeah. yeah and it's not just um research buyers too it's people i mean I've only really engaged with agencies from a, like a rebrand perspective or um, we have a paid search agency, but that's a, you know, you don't, they don't even really need to manage our, it's just this, this other person who's almost like a freelancer who helps us with paid search. But even then, I think I spoke to four different agencies and you just think of the number when I was getting the rebrand, sorry. Um, and you just think of the number of hours that go into prepping yeah. for you know, showing us their capabilities and then showing us their process and then taking our specific need and coming up with like what they would do to help us. I mean, and then three of those four, I didn't end up working with. Yeah. So you see it in, in so many different ways. I mean, in your mind, how could you see the commercial model being better when what you're really buying is someone's expertise? Do you know what I mean? Like how, how can we fix it? Yeah. So I think I think more use of effective retainers. I think having you know longer term relationships with uh, agencies and you know having not thinking in a project mindset so much. So you think you know we're going to brief this project, we're going to get a brief and you know done and dusted. You think about building a knowledge asset for your organization, and you think about working with partners who can help you build that over the long term. So you have you know long-term engagements multi-year contracts you have you know agreed kpis and metrics making sure that the right kind of individuals are on the team over the long term and multiple projects what happens inevitably is agencies stick their best and shiny people on a pitch and then the junior people end up doing the project because there's no money yeah. left after spending so much pitching so that really really needs fixing it's it, you know it's broken in advertising as well i'm not saying that you know a retainer model is um you know is the panacea but it needs to change if uh, if people want to get the best out of agencies yeah it's a really good point um okay i'm conscious of time um in terms of wrapping things up i did want to ask a little bit about future proofing which we talked about being yeah. really yeah. challenging but if someone is looking to plan for the next few years down the road um you know what should they expect to see more of less of within the research space yeah i think there are three big things, all of which are kind of non-specific. You know, it's it's um, it's a luxury of people like me that we can, you know, we can make these predictions and nobody comes back and calls us out when we're wrong a couple of years down the line. So, you know, uh, I will make some. Um, yeah, there's, there's three big areas that I think people should be learning about and planning for. I think one is, um, you know, the growth in... Uh, machine learning, deep learning, you know, AI, those labels are not actually all that helpful, but specific use cases like language, huge language models. So there was a, an article recently in The Economist by actually the boss of the guy who got fired from Google for saying that their AI was sentient. It's, it's a very compelling read because their Lambda model is 
you know, it's not sentient, but it's getting very, very clever at understanding emotional nuance, the kind of uh, suppositions that we all make about what's going on in somebody else's head. Well worth a read. And the, the big implication for me is if you think that qualitative research is too hard of a problem for these language models to really get to grips with compared to humans, you need to think again, because I think in two to three years time, we're going to see some very intelligent stuff happening around qual using these AI tools. There's um, a recently launched uh, user research product, software product called Ballpark. And um, you can find it at ballparkhq.com, I think is the, is the URL. They're using one of these big language models, GPT-3, to effectively to synthesize the content of lots of qualitative interviews and automatically generate a summary to say, this is what all this stuff means. That you'll see a lot more of, and you'll see some really creative applications. So for me, one is, you know, huge language models and AI related stuff. Um, second one is one we've talked about a little bit already, which is platform ecosystems and integrations. You know, you, you can't exist in a vacuum anymore. You need to have, at the very least, an API that's going to connect what you do into a client's data environment. But increasingly, I think, you know, we see big systems of record in, in the kind of marketing tech space. You've got the HubSpots, you've got the Salesforces. There's not really anything equivalent in, in research tech. And I think there will, you know, there will be much more of a kind of platform ecosystem model develop over the next couple of years. Uh, and the third thing is, you know, in spite of all this tech, uh, honestly, like the human curation is still going to be really important. The storytelling, the, the drawing of random threads, you know, even though I've said these, these big language models can start to do some really impressive things, people are the ones who are going to make these surprising inferences across different types of data sets and different types of inputs you know so i think the the storytelling the empathy skills the lateral thinking all of that stuff i think brings research skills up into more of a, a kind of premium advisory space than they necessarily have been in the, or you know certainly not evenly distributed in, in the past i think that will become much more important so yeah, for those, you know, AI integrations and uh, human curation, I think big, big things that, that will become more important. Fascinating. Thank you, Mike. Honestly, this is, um, this has been really interesting, not only I'm sure for the listeners, but like for me as well, when I think about where my head needs to be um, as someone who's marketing a research company. Um, so yeah, massively helpful. Where can people find you or what you're what you're up to yeah i mean you, you can find me on linkedin i am a terrible social media user and i'll get very busy and noisy <laughs> for a short period of time and then have you know weeks of silence so uh, don't expect it to be regular but you know check out insightplatforms.com there's tons and tons of video content blog articles demos there's lots and lots of companies on there and in the next few weeks we'll be relaunching the the insight platforms academy that will have tons of self-paced training courses for, for different parts of the, the research skill set. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I'll see you, actually, I'll see you in person in a few weeks. Um, yeah, that's great. I, I think I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Thanks for tuning in this week. Find us on LinkedIn at Dig Insights and don't forget to hit subscribe for a weekly dose of fresh content.